What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are on episode 71. Last week, I was talking about property taxes. And this week, I'm gonna be taking a look at innovation in the property industry. Now, digital transformation has been impacting every single sector and real estate is absolutely no exception. So I gotta ask you the question, are you actively looking to remove friction from your business, from your portfolio, from finding tenants, whatever it might be? It's something that you should look at because I think if you just take a look at other industries and how they've been impacted, first of all, banks. Banks have been massively impacted by fintech. It used to be that you had to go to the bank and the bank would only open from 10 to 4, uh, certainly in this country. And you would stand in line and you would do all this kind of stuff. Now you pop out your phone, you transfer money instantly, you do all this stuff. Banks have really been feeling the pain and the pinch from that. It's the same with the taxi industry. If you have a look at the taxi industry, it used to be that you bought yourself a taxi plate, you'd paid you know, a lot of money for it, but then you were basically in the club and you had little or no competition. You had people queuing. I can remember when I was you know, finishing college as a young guy walking out, going out in the evenings and stuff. And you would be looking at an hour maybe standing in a line for a taxi after the nightclub closed or whatever. Just complete, you know, ridiculous situation. And nowadays we have, I mean, back in those days, they didn't take credit cards. They wanted it to be cash. If you were, you know, handing over, if, if it came to 17 pounds or 17 euro, whatever, and you handed over 20 Often the guy wouldn't have any change and you'd be, he'd be kind of expecting you to say, okay, keep the change. And so along comes Uber, along comes these, you know, companies like Halo or whoever it was that has disrupted certain markets. And they come along, make it as frictionless as possible, make it as convenient as possible. You want to pay with a credit card? No problem. You want to get out of the car without even having to talk to the driver? No problem. You can do that. Just set your card up on your phone. All of that is the kind of topic I'm getting into today. It's making it as efficient and friction-free as possible. And so my guest this week is Robert Hoban. Now, Robert is the founder and CEO of a prop tech firm called Offer, and that's spelled O-F-F-O-R. And if you're looking for it on the website, it'll be O-F-F-O-R.io. And I'm going to put links into the show notes. But uh, Offer is growing across the UK and Ireland. It's an Irish firm started by Robert, and it's now starting actually to look at other markets, including the US. And uh, as I, as you'll hear in this podcast, myself and Robert, we actually mentioned Duke Long, who was in, I think, episode 28 of the podcast. So I'll be putting a link in to Duke as well, because he gets a mention in today's podcast. Now, Robert has a wealth of experience in this industry, having previously held the role of managing director at another prop tech firm called BidX1. Now, BidX1 is still you know, doing great things. It's, it's a digital property marketplace. And it is active across the UK, Ireland, Spain, Cyprus, Greece, and now South Africa. 
Prior to that, Robert was the commercial director of Allsop's Ireland, or Allsop Ireland, which introduced the property auctions that it became kind of famous for in the Irish market after the big crash of 2008. And um, it's he Robert's going to go into the history of that and how he got involved and how he ended up kind of he was he was number three in that company when it started, and where they ended up doing two hundred and fifty auction they ended up selling two hundred and fifty properties in a single day between nine a.m. and six p.m. That's one every three minutes, and they 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 just went on to enormous success. The first time they did it, two and a half thousand people showed up for the auction. And so there's a ton of valuable insights for anyone who is looking to either invest in property or with any ambition to actually go out there and disrupt the status quo by, you know, doing something innovative and disruptive in the industry. So without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Robert Hoban. Robert, you're most welcome. How are you doing? Thanks, Kevin. Delighted to be here. Looking forward to a chat. Where are you? You're in Dublin today, yeah? I'm in Dublin, yeah, yeah. Although I'm every two or three weeks, I'm over and back to London, sort of. Uh, so, as we emerge from our cocoon, I've been dividing my time between the UK and here as we try to get the business off the ground over there. So it's been an interesting time. <laughs> I imagine, yeah, airports and all that. The um, I'm going to go into your company, your startup that you're working on at the moment. I'm also going to go into the previous um, companies that you've been involved in, but I'd like to take you back to the beginning, back to young Robert, you know, emerging out of university and uh, thinking that he might like to get involved in the property industry. Can you tell us, like, what was the catalyst? Because I actually, I was doing a little bit of research and I checked your LinkedIn and I see you have an electrical engineering degree from UCD and a law degree from DIT. And that is not the typical sort of, uh, education that I speak to when I speak to a lot of people who are in the property industry usually it's property economics or it's something like that so tell us what kind of brought you into the property industry yeah well I suppose like a lot of people leaving school I I hadn't a clue what I wanted to do even after I'd done the leaving cert you know so I had various interests um and actually I did I went to UCD and I studied uh, three years of electrical electronic engineering but actually I didn't finish that degree that's how I ended up going into law into the law degree years later so I um, am Excuse me. I was was interested, love science and 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 mathematics and you know the the the, the principles of of physics. Um, but when I was I was going through my third year in engineering and I just I don't know I, I wasn't loving it at the time and I ended up working for the summer in property and I ended up not going back to college. Um, and you know I I enjoyed that. I, I started working for what was. Hamilton Osborne King HOK. If anyone remembers, mm. uh, they they became Savills years later. Um, and I was in the country homes and estates division. So it was, you know, selling farms and stud farms and lovely period houses up and down the country. Um, and I love, I love kind of the country life and I'm, I'm into my horses and things like that. So it was kind of home from home. So that's how I ended up going into property then. It, it was a, a somewhat uh, serendipitous uh, venture. It was through uh, a family friend, Pat O'Hagan, who was head of country homes there that I did a kind of a summer job there and ended up ended up staying. And so then it was years later when I was in my uh, 30s that I went back to college at night and I did a law degree in DIT. It was something that I always wanted to complete as in, you know, complete a third level qualification. But equally, it was an area that fascinated me. And, and having already had, a, you know, 
partial career through property, you deal with a lot of legal things and you touch on the law a lot and you have to understand property law, contract law, commercial law from a very amateur perspective. So I, I decided to uh, to give that a go and, and I didn't practice law or anything like that. I was, you know, director of Allsop at the time, I <laughs> had plenty to be doing, but it was certainly very interesting. Yeah, I can relate actually because uh, studying architecture as I did, um, there is actually kind of a component of law that you actually have to learn. And uh, there was actually some of our, I think probably third, fourth and fifth year, there was a there was a whole law sort of side to it where you had to do contract law and all that kind of stuff. So I can remember being kind of interested in it, but not interested enough to go and pursue any kind of a degree <laughs> in it, that's for sure. Um, in terms of just, I mean, it's, it's so interesting how, You've, um, I mean, you've you've gone now down the path of property or of prop tech, uh, I guess is the word, and um, it's you know that is a kind of a particular skill set and stuff like that. But looking at you know the career, you know, a couple of years uh, in the country department of uh, HOK and and Savills and stuff like that. I mean, what sort of pulled you into the into the Alsop Ireland um, role that you eventually ended up in? Yeah, well, I was—I was actually it was the best part of a decade, nearly in in um, HOK slash Savills. Uh, so I was thirty when uh, I left Savills. The crash had happened, you know, had started to happen a year or two prior to that, and um, I, I was introduced to Stephen McCarthy, who's an Irish entrepreneur, um, former property developer and, and general property investor, and he had the idea uh, to create auctions in Ireland because. He had a good sense that there was going to be a lot of property coming to the market that needed to be sold quickly um, as a result of the of the crash. So he, he was introduced to me by Rowena Quinn, a mutual friend. Rowena is a former colleague of mine and Rowena heads up Hunters, a state agent. I know Rowena. Uh, yes. Yeah. And um, so Stephen was looking for someone from within the property industry to join him uh, to help set this up. And he already had Jonathan Fenn with them. Um, who is director of, of BidX1 um, now because it became BidX1. So the three of us set up our little team and we started and we, we had a, a sort of a, a loose agreement, a gentleman's agreement, you might say, with Allsop in London to, to create a proof of concept here, which was the first Allsop auction on the 15th of April 2011 uh, in the Shelburne Hotel. And, you know, after a year more than a year uh, of work and false starts and false dawns um we got our first auction off the ground uh, we sold 81 out of 82 properties that day and i remember there's wow. two and a half thousand two and a half thousand people turned up to stevens green trying to get into the shelburne hotel and we've got all sorts of global coverage at the time it was cnn it was sky news there was really Aust- wow. australian broadcasting corporation there was bbc world service it was just it was you know headline news at the time um, but <clears throat> an awful lot of work went into it behind the scenes. I mean, I remember when I first met Steve, I was sitting in his office and he told me the idea he had and I thought it sounded brilliant. And I said, I'd, I'd love to do it. You know, so I had left Savills and I, I, I started with Steve. But I remember he was saying, look, we'll give this a go for, for three months. See if, you know, if we have an opportunity. And look, if, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Shake hands and, you know, we'll, we'll find something else to do. Or, and if it does work, you know, who knows what it might become. But that three months turned into nearly a year and a half before we got it off the ground because wow. it was a big, big change. It was a big new thing to bring to the market, a big new idea. Um, but also at the time, we had sort of assumed that there would be an instant appetite for this amongst, say, the, the banks and, and the funds that needed to, to sell properties. But actually, because the prices had 
skyrocketed so high, you know, pre-2009, you know, the, the real underlying value was a lot less than that. So there was a, there was a reluctance to, to set a floor, you might say, to find out where the actual value is, because then those values have to be applied across huge books. Yeah. So it took a long time. And thankfully, when we had our first auction, the prices that were achieved were actually well above the, 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 the reserve prices at the time. But that sparked then uh, a whole new business. You know, Allsop Ireland became quite an established name. We grew the team to 20 or 30 people, um, generating, you know, uh, solid revenues with six big auctions a year. I mean, on, on the auction day itself, it would start at nine o'clock in the morning and would continue till six o'clock in the evening. And the hammer would come down every three minutes. I mean, every three minutes. Every wow. three minutes. The gavel would come down. Yeah. The same gavel that I have here. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Jonathan, Jonathan gave to me uh, my name engraved on when I stood up to the rostrum because the first few auctions, it was... Um, Gary Murphy and Chris Berryman from uh, London, Allsop London, and then I joined the auction team, and I and then the three of us were conducting the auctions. I would take the middle shift from sort of twelve to three, and uh, get through about 80, 80 properties sold. So we moved to the RDS then, um, because the Shelburne was just it was it was a fantastic locate or you know fantastic venue, but the location was not ideal for people coming from all parts of the country and needing parking and things like that. So we moved to the RDS, and um, and in terms of the numbers. I mean, two and a half thousand people the first time. Was it like that every time, or did I mean the Shelburne can't take that kind of? No, I think the capacity is seven hundred. I think in the uh, in the grand ballroom that they have there. Right. So actually, you know, an interesting one on that day itself, we had all these people coming, but the vast majority were there to observe and to watch. And I think half the estate agents in Ireland turned up as well to see. <laughs> what was going on and would these properties sell because you know agents had properties on their books for the previous couple of years that that weren't shifting understandably I mean the market had changed overnight um so what we had to do is we had obviously a lot of people there to bid as well so we had to restrict entry just to those with either checkbooks or credit cards or some evidence that they were you know were going to pay the deposit and we we did a quick live feed to Donnie Nesbitt's up the street and this was at 11 o'clock in the morning. And so anyone who just want, wanted to observe could go down to Donnie Nesbitt's and they had them all up on the big screen showing the <laughs> auction. And so all the, 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 the patrons went in and ordered their tea and coffee. I think Donnie sold more tea and coffee than they've ever sold in that two-hour period when, when things kicked off. And um, I remember there was an outside broadcast of Sky News uh, and the, filming inside the pub. And it was along the tone of sort of... Um, here we are in Ireland, you know, whereby, you know, there's a huge recession has been has been caused by by the, the crash of the property market and over speculation. And in, in the local pub here in Dublin, instead of everybody watching the football, they're all watching a property auction taking place next door. And it was a sort of a kind of a will will they ever learn type thing, you know, and um, that that was, you know, went on that. Uh, auction went on till God, five in the evening. But no, after that, it was it, it would be about a thousand people. Um, oh. 600 to 1,000 people would attend uh, on, a, on a given day. But there was, you know, dozens and dozens of other uh, bodies involved as regards to lawyers in the legal room. We had our staff. We had catering. We had security. We had all sorts of things. So it was a big, big affair. And it was that then that actually prompted us to be looking at potential online solutions because it was a hugely costly affair to, 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 to put to on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very professionally done, I, I, I'd like to think, but it was still very costly as a result of it being being done well. So that was um, when we started experimenting with online technology and we, we started running small online auctions um, in between the big physical ones. 
And they proved very, very popular. They proved very efficient. And indeed, so much so that they started to supersede the physical auctions. Right. <laughs> even with even with my good self on the rostrum, I couldn't compete with the automated version of me. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, we, we transitioned then very quickly into, into a pure online auction company. So Allsop Ireland then went from a physical auction to an online auction, but it was still called Allsop Ireland. Right. And uh, when it went totally online. And I mean, with a thousand people, right, you know, coming into to each one, I remember you, you would charge, I think it was a registration fee or something like that. That must have been something that kind of generated a few, uh, like 50,000. It would have covered some of the costs or something like that. Yeah, we start exactly. Yeah, we 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 had to try to to kind of recoup some of the costs of of, of hosting the the event, and so um, we did charge. We introduced a charge of fifty euro to to attend. Um, but you know you could bid on as many lots as you wanted once once that was in. But it was also a way of of kind of um, managing the numbers and things like that. So, Keeping the gawkers out. <laughs> yeah, I suppose we wanted to make sure everyone who was there to buy had uh, had a seat. So. Um, that was yeah, but there was genuinely you know, we were surprised or you know pleasantly surprised that there was no real resistance to that. You know these these are people coming who wanted, you know, to buy a property. They were there to do business. You know if it you know if it meant that they could do so in comfort and um, you know with space and access to professional services, I, I, it it didn't become much of an issue. Um, and then when we went online, it was a slightly different story because with online auctions, because the bidder ultimately becoming the buyer is not physically there to come up and hand you the money for the deposit mm. we have you have to take a, a pre-registration deposit online uh, like a bidder security which could be anything depending on the size of the value of the property but typically you know sort of four or five thousand euro which is done by pre-authorized online um card payment which is released if you're unsuccessful um so that we didn't have to do that in the on, in the physical auction but we had to do that in, in the online auction but uh, yeah, it 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 became very popular. I mean, to give you um, an example, and this ultimately is what sort of started m- my mind thinking uh, about where else this could be used. Was there was one period whereby one month in September? Oh God, I'm going to get this wrong, but I, I think it was around 2015, 2016, whereby we had one big physical auction and one big online auction in the same month. So we had 200 lots in the physical auction and 200 lots in the online auction, which was two weeks later, all very similar, similar mix of property types and mix of locations and similar values. So, you know, nothing really to differentiate the catalogs. Um, so we did the physical auction and we at that stage, you know, we didn't have so many spectators. They were all bidders. So our crowds were down to maybe about three to four hundred people, but all there to bid. We had a very successful day, you know, 80 percent thereabouts sold and about maybe 25% over reserve price was the average. And by all accounts, a very, very, um, you know, normal, successful day. Two weeks later, we had our first big online auction. And on the morning of the auction, about an hour before the first lot was due to go live, there was a thousand registered bidders, each having processed 5,000 euro prepayments on their card from all over the world, from all over Ireland, from all over the UK, from all over the world. That's 5 million or something, is it? (laughs) Yeah, on on pre-auths now, it was all just, you know, you know, holes put on accounts, like when you go to book a hotel room, you know. Sure. So, um, but I mean, what what a a vindication of an online process. So any sense that, you know, going online would in any way somehow inhibit or reduce was quite the opposite. In fact, in in fact, it actually opened up the market. Uh, So when you have three times the number of 
bidders per property, you are naturally going to have a higher success rate. So the success mm-hmm. rate was something closer to 90% that day. And we had a higher percentage over reserve. I think it was closer to 35% over reserve as opposed to 25%, which, which was we had got two weeks prior. So that for us at the time was a big turning point. You know, we knew then that there was a real future in this. And from talking to, to buyers, as you would naturally talk to over the, the weeks and months, it became very clear that there was two major two major um, benefits or, or things that appealed to them. One was that it was much more convenient. It was considered more convenient. You know, oh, I'm on holiday that week or I'm on a way or on a work trip or I'm very busy that day. I can still participate. And the second thing was the anonymity of it, the protection, the privacy, the confidentiality, the idea that you're not in the full glare of 100 other people who might be interested in the same property and it's less intimidating. And so therefore, people felt more comfortable. They're bidding from the comfort of their own home behind their own laptop screen or their own mobile phone. So that combination was quite a heady cocktail that produced better and faster results. Um, so within a few months, the, the entire physical auction uh, at the time went, went online from, Jan, from the following January onwards. And tell me, in terms of just the way the format of it, was it the same, you know, yourself standing at, in, in front of a camera now with a gavel or was it you know, kind of a, you, you register kind of a bid or something like that? No, it, it, it wasn't a hybrid model at all. It was pure online. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, a, a sort of a, a glib way of describing it would be eBay for property, right. whereby it was completely automated, completely online. But we had a full team, you know, the, the entire team of surveyors who had been marketing the properties and dealing with the, with the buyers and the inquiries for the previous month and showing, physically showing the properties. There sometimes is a myth that if it's an online sale, you, you, people must not be able to see the properties. You can still go and visit the properties prior to the auction. Right. So there was as much pre-work involved. Yeah. Yeah. And the contracts were all being prepared by the lawyers acting for the various vendors, but they're all being uploaded into a virtual data room instead of being available. Like we used to have in big brown envelopes, they used to sit in boxes. So when you went into the RDS, there was a big legal documents rule room and you had these big cardboard boxes with huge big a a three envelopes brown envelopes each one with a legal pack printed out on the contract for sale and title deeds and all that sort of stuff that was all went online um so uh it it, it was there was no auctioneer uh, broadcasting as such and people were were very happy with that so it would close every it used to be every five minutes then we brought it down to every three and then we brought it down to every two now i left four years ago so i'm not sure what the interval is now but it was down to every two minutes at one stage that each lot would close and at that stage i mean the 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 nice thing as well just when you're talking about the anonymity and the convenience i think there's also there's a transparency about it as well that you can kind of you can see your bid there and then oh oh crap somebody's like bid beyond me as opposed to these kind of you know people always had these suspicions that there was somebody in the room that wasn't actually serious but he was kind of like trying to pump up the price or something like that yeah, absolutely. No, you're dead right. Now, I mean, there's a certain amount of transparency in an auction, generally anyway, in the concept of an auction and that you can see people putting their hands up. But yeah. as you say, you know, unless you're sitting in the very back row, you're not going to see everybody in the room. So you don't really know for sure. But whereas in an online version, everything is recorded. It's permanent record, dated and timestamps. The evidence is there behind the scenes that such and such a person mm. registered and bid with their ID. You know, there's IP addresses, there's email addresses. There's all sorts of things that you wouldn't get. With a, with a traditional auction and you're right and that it will appeal more and more and it is going to continue that way you know as the next generation of buyers keep coming through they're going to want to do more and more of it on their own phone self-service not having to be talked to someone talk to someone every step of the way it's the removal of friction really isn't that it yeah exactly yeah i mean it still keeps the human advisory side of things 
And I suppose that then was what brought me on to to me ultimately leaving four years ago um, and I left a job I loved and a, and a great bunch of people and Bidex One has gone on to some fantastic things now in, in several different countries. So it's a real Irish success story. At this stage, by the way, the company had changed name from Allsoft to Bidex One. Yeah, um, I remember because, seeing yeah, that around. So the, the shareholders um, did a deal whereby Allsoft sold their 50% of shares to the company. And so therefore, obviously, the name also was no longer associated. So it became BitX1. But we were running some interesting um, sort of trials with some agents um, that were interested in the bidding technology to see, could it help speed up the closing of traditional sales? So auction is a very powerful method of sale, and it's very uh, becoming more and more popular, but it's still quite niche. Less than 5% of properties in, in most countries sell by way of auction. The other 95% are all sold by way of what they call private treaty, which is a sort of a semi-legal and, and an industry term. But for the average person, what that just means is it's open to offers, effectively yeah. is what that means. And the agent brokers them or whatever, yeah. The, the agent brokers them, but it also means that you have conditional offers. Uh, so, you know, you might have three people placing an offer, but all three of them are totally different. You know, some is, are subject to finance, subject to the sale of the property. Others might be totally cash and others might be able to close tomorrow. Others might not be able to close for another five months. So they're, they're, every offer is different, you might say, and every buyer is different. So um, some of our clients at the time were interested in, uh, you know, finding a way to speed up the traditional sale process um, by maybe introducing some online bidding processes so we, we managed to successfully get some really good deals over the line working with some great uh, agent brands um in ireland and but but it, it it kind of it struggled a little bit i suppose that the main bits of feedback coming back were you know that the the, the bidding was still auction you know it was still unconditional there wasn't any conditionality to it so and it also meant that you know they also had to always had to sell to the highest bidder Whereas in a, in a private treaty case, there's more negotiations and, you know, with the ability to choose uh, an offer from a buyer that may be a better offer, not because of the monetary amount, but because of the conditions okay. or, or lack thereof conditions yeah. attached to the offer. So that's when I realized, ah, there's a potential market here for a more flexible solution. That's an independent technology that is built purely as a software, just purely software as a service. Um, that this can then be integrated and dropped into agents' businesses very, very easily and very quickly and allow them to conduct digital sales of not just auction, but private treaty. And then also we've grown into other areas like new homes and lettings and things like that, which are on the roadmap. So, yeah, so I made the the, the, the plunge <laughs> four years ago. and um, I can remember and you and I met for a coffee in October 2018. You had only just literally kicked off the business at that stage. Uh, it was I still think, kind of very early, yeah. wasn't it? I had, uh, so it was, in, no, it was in, in August 2017, but I had spent a long time trying to map it out and decide how I was going to do this and, you know, meet the right people and my, introduce two co-founders, which I did over time, over, over the next 12 months. Um, but yeah, I, I decided, I mean, I remember I met, I met with Steve in his office and I said, listen, I think, you know, give this a go or whatever. And uh, in fairness, he was very supportive. So uh, I kind of, yeah, I had to move, move back into the mother's house, save on the rent. And uh, I, I rented bootstrap. a, a bootstrap. bootstrap. Oh, you have no idea. Um, I had to figure out for the first time I left out to really properly bootstrap. Um, so I you know, rented a hot desk in Dogpatch Labs in the IFSC there for 200 oh, quid a month. Yeah. And um, based myself there, made myself get out of the house and go into town and sit at a desk 
and map things out, sketch it all out, that type of thing. And then um, at some point, I invited uh, Philip Farrell, who I knew for a number of years. I know um, Philip, yeah. And yeah, Philip was, you know, was CEO of Real Estate Alliance. And previously to that, you know, he was involved in his family's estate agency business in Newbridge. Um, and but he had left that a number of years prior. He was writing a column in the Sunday Independent. And I knew that he was, you know, a trusted independent individual, but also who knew the industry in Ireland very well. And I wanted to make sure that I was building something that the industry would be really interested in, that was genuinely going to solve a problem for them. Because, you know, it was back some time before I, you know, since I was working in HOK Savills, that was real traditional industry stuff. But I mean, it was over a decade prior. So, you know, things had moved on and my whole world was auctioned for so long. I mean, I was like at the auction goggles yeah. on. Nuances um, could have gotten in the yeah. way. Yeah. So when it came to the auction piece, I, I was all over that, no problem. But when it came to the more traditional piece, that was where uh, Philip's help was 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 uh, very important. And then through an Enterprise Ireland program that I went on, New Frontiers program, um, I was introduced indirectly to Neil Dawson. And Neil had been the head of technology for a number of, of tech successful tech businesses, many of them um, founded by Ray Nolan. And uh, so Neil was consulting. Um, I ran the project past him. He, he was interested. We chatted it out. And so Neil came on board then and has overseen uh, the build of, of the entire system. And so that's that's our founding team. And we've since grown on. We've done two fundraisers and we've grown the team now and we're launching it in several different countries. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster a few years. I, I can imagine. Uh, and I'd like to get into that. But before we do, I, I wanted to just ask you, I mean, some of the mindset shifts that you've gone through, I mean, this process, as you say, it's a roller coaster. And as part of that, you would have experienced kind of successes and failures and, and sort of realizations that, oh, okay, this is not the path I need to go. What have been the biggest kind of mindset shifts that you've noticed in the last, you know, two or three years? I certainly had a few of them, all right. Well, I, I do remember when I was contemplating leaving um, BitX1. And as I say, I had nothing to complain about. I had a great setup there. Um, and actually, Steve had asked me, would I move abroad and help set BitX1 up in outside of Ireland? You know, we were looking at the UK and South Africa and a few other countries. So it was an exciting opportunity. But I kind of I had this yearning inside me that I wanted to set up my own business and kind of be my own boss and all that kind of stuff that goes with that, you know. And um, I, I took myself off to to France for five days just to go to drive around a little bit. I remember I, I was sitting opposite uh, Connor Fenn, one of my colleagues at the time. We were chatting and I said, God, oh, well, I'd like to go away. So why don't you go to La Rochelle? You can get a Ryanair flight there. I was like, oh, I've never been. So right there on the spot, I just booked a Ryanair flight to La Rochelle. <laughs> I had no accommodation booked. I flew over, had five days. The, the only plan I had was I wanted to get to the Dordogne area where good friends of my my, my mum and dad had retired to a, a sort of a, a little farmhouse there and had little cottages that they rent out so I was going to drive there and you know spend a few days so I ended up arriving into La Rochelle the exact same week that all of Paris holidays in La Rochelle so couldn't find accommodation 14th anywhere. of July I think it was yeah well funny enough it wasn't Bastille Day no but it was uh first or second week of August is, okay is, is sort of a big big time there yeah and um the only thing that was available was a boat in the harbor so I uh, I booked the boat uh to sleep on for the first two nights saw everything that I could see there but the whole time I was thinking and thinking, but I had also brought a fantastic book called The Future of the Professions by um, a father and son lawyer uh, team in, in the UK. It's not a, a sort of a self-help book. It's about how technology is shaping the professions. 
from medicine to law to accountancy to architecture and how it's having massive impacts. And I was convinced that this could definitely apply to the property industry. So anyway, I was reading the book the whole way along and the five days went by and I drove down the beautiful little drive through the country roads and got to, to Bergerac. Had, had a glass of Bergerac in Bergerac, had a glass of Bordeaux in Bordeaux, had a glass of Cognac in Cognac all along the way. It, it all sounds very, very fantastic, but the whole thing was on a shoestring budget. And uh, I drove back after the five days back to La Rochelle and I flew home. And on the plane back, I had just finished the last page of the book and I said, yeah, OK, I'm going to do this. So then on the Love Monday, it. yeah, on the Monday I went in and I, and I sat down with Steve. Um, so, yeah, so that was a sort of a that was the final push I needed to convince myself of it. But um, that was that was kind of what, what inspired that. And then equally, you know, you make mistakes along the way. I hadn't a clue. You know, I really like I'd never done this before. I'd only ever worked for somebody and I'd only ever worked in companies that we had resources. You know, you, ha- you, have, you, have, you have finance, you have IT, you have marketing, you have, yeah. you know, you have, you have. You have people to fix your computer when it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, oh, payroll needs to be done, all these kind of things. You know, everything. I had to do everything from scratch. You know, even just creating my own brochures, I did them myself, all that kind of stuff. So um, you had to learn very, very quickly. But one, one, of the, one of the mistakes I definitely made was when I was had the idea and I had mapped it all out and I knew exactly what we were going to do when we were in the process of building it, I definitely left it too late to go and talk to the industry who I was going to actually be selling it into. I had been, my head had been filled by, by people telling me, oh my God, you know, everyone's going to steal your idea. Everyone's going to steal your idea. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone, you know. But yeah. actually, people aren't interested in stealing people's ideas. They're far too busy with what's going on in their own lives. And the be. execution is the biggest thing at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. so what, what, what I could have saved myself probably six months was going and talking sooner and more often to the the people I'm, I will be looking to actually sell this product to. Customers, yeah. Yeah, customers, and getting their involvement and getting them, because two things would have happened. It might have changed slightly some of the, the aspects of the product, but also, you know, from a human level, when when when, a, when a someone is, is looking at a solution coming to them, if they already have got to know the person, if they've already got a certain familiarity with it, it's less of a, of a leap of faith for them when, when it comes along. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, great, you've, you know, you've done exactly what we were talking about. You know, yeah, I'd yeah. love to try it out. Right? Whereas if you're kind of coming flashbang with the finished article and it's the first time, it takes time for people to trust you, to trust the product, to trust, you know, potentially disrupting their own business that they have yeah. built with their own hands for a while to bring something new in. So going like that with a flashbang, new thing is is I, that's something I would do differently I would have involved the industry much earlier on now mm. everything is fine thankfully you know it, the, the, the product was very well received but it probably took six months longer as a result of that so that's just something that's, an in, that, that's a great insight because I um, uh, over the years I've kind of been like an advisor to various people who are coming along and the biggest t- turnoff is when somebody whips out the piece of paper that's the nda you know the non-disclosure agreement i'd like you to sign this before i tell you anything and it's just it's a blanket no for me it's just like listen you know if you don't want my help it's it's perfectly fine i'm not signing a document uh you know this is me you know offering my my time to you you know i'm not signing a document and so many people i've seen make that mistake they kind of think the paranoia is there that if I show this, you know, if I show even the name of the business, like somebody's going to go off and register the domain and they're going to do this and that, and it's, they're going to whip all my great, greatest ideas away. 
So it's. I know, yeah, and I mean, I'm sure there are. There's, there's a catalogue of evidence of, of instances that 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 has happened, but there is it's a teeny tiny list compared to the vast number of businesses that continue on without that. You know, and yeah. the NDAs is at our stage in our business now when we're you know we have a big complex system built and we're looking to maybe integrate with another big complex system then ndas are very appropriate right because you're getting an engineering team talking to another engineering team of course and they're getting sight on your numbers as well potentially and things like that you know yeah exactly business models and things like that so that's appropriate but i would agree it's 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 not it's not as needed and i i, I didn't certainly and i spoke to you know, I've got over 30 investors in, in the business, large and small, and we've spoken to countless companies and people and mentors and potential investors. And it's something that is not something that needs to be worried about. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, in terms of just the, I mean, you, you mentioned bootstrapping. And I mean, can you give us just the, you know, that first couple of months, you're saying you were doing basically everything yourself, you know, in terms of like the lessons that you've learned from from starting up a, a business from scratch, like it, how would you do it differently? I mean, you've already mentioned you would have mm. talked, spoken to your customers earlier, but is bootstrapping it the way to go? Would you have preferred to have gone out and brought in, you know, a funding partner or something like that? So I, I, I think I probably gave the wrong impression. We probably were more like the latter. So when I say bootstrapping, I meant really just initially myself when I was starting off, I just had my own savings that I was using because, you know, you, you leave the job, the income's gone immediately, you know, the salary's yeah. gone for next month. There's no, no arrival into the, into the, into the bank account. So that was really more of what I was saying, but I think I went definitely went down the funding route earlier than other companies I've seen who have bootstrapped as long as they can. Right. So I can, I can probably say more as I think it, it has worked in our favor as opposed to something I would look to change, but I would encourage people maybe to do something similar. So, what I mean is, initially, I had a certain amount of funds myself, my own savings, and that got me through, you know, I put half of my savings into the business directly as a cash transfer into the new bank account. And the other half was just to support myself in, in the absence of any sort of income. Yeah. And then, um, uh, you know, my two co-founders also, uh, you know, contributed financially um, to you know, be able to keep the, the the product in development, but we knew we had to raise money. So at that stage, we had already started conversations about raising money. Um, I spoke to, I was introduced to Hugh O'Neill of Hogan and Associates, um, accountancy firm there in Farnham that um, do a lot of work for, in fundraising and uh, showed the idea. We worked with Hugh to decide how much we needed to raise, you know, what sort of outlay did we need to have and what sort of income did we expect? And Hugh introduced me then to Morris Roach, the managing partner of Delta Partners, an Irish VC firm there based in, in Leopardstown. And Morris liked the idea. <laughs> One of the things Morris said to me, and he was, he was right, he said, yeah, that's great. So you need to raise half a million. Right. Yeah. OK, you need to raise a million. So it was a, <laughs> Straight away. He figured it out. Doubling it immediately, um, uh, which I thought and, and some and other people had said that to me. Whatever you think you need to raise, double it, uh, because that's the cheapest money you'll ever raise in a way because of the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's being raised based on a hope and a promise as opposed to future money is going to have to be raised based on performance and, and figures and things like that. So, mm. you know, raise as much as you can initially so as you can buy a lot more time to, to get the figures up and, you know, deal with any uh, eventualities that you don't see coming that could affect your, your future valuation. So, yeah, so at that stage, you know, we, we, we fast forward, we closed a million euro 
Did you have to uh, give away a, a lot of equity for for that initial? There was a, a pre money. No, it was uh, it was about you know just under thirty percent uh, equity, which um, which we were happy to live with. I um, put a so value we, on the business of about three million, so or thereabouts, or yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that was based on, I suppose you might say, the experience of the founders, and you know we had good experience in the various sectors. So you know Philip and I had the solid property experience. Um, we had a, a good set of contacts and clients who had given us verbal confirmation that they would use the product, you know, which is what the investors needed to see. And then Neil, with his technical abilities, gave us fantastic uh, tech credibility, uh, which is often a huge issue. You know, founders typically come from either within the industry that they're looking to provide the solution or they're coming from the tech background with a great product for an industry that they see something that, that could benefit from it. And most companies that I've come across now, and as you can imagine, I've gone through various founder funding sessions and yeah. accelerate, accelerator programs, um, both international and, and at home. And most companies come from one or the other in, in the early stage. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a huge thing is get both the industry and the technical expertise on the founding team from the outset. I think that really is, is so, so important. I've yes, heard that multiple, multiple times. Yeah, every time yeah. I've brought on a, v- a venture capital person, it's it's exactly what they say: is that get your get your technical dire- co-director or your get tech- technical co-founder on board right from the word go. If, yeah, if if you're not technical, equally vice versa. If if it's a, a you know a fantastic programmer that has created a brilliant product and is trying to get it into an industry, you know, get an uh, an industry. Co-founder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But in as a co-founder, not even just as a consultant or as somebody who kind of advise because they're, they're, they'll only be half interested or, or providing a few introductions, that type of thing. So that's that's certainly something worth doing. Can you describe what your what offer does for anyone who's just not familiar with it? Um... Yeah. So it's, it's an online bidding and online transaction tool to speed up property transactions. Uh, make them really fast, really um, efficient, and very transparent. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to property transactions, whether it's residential or commercial, they're very, very slow. It's extremely old-fashioned. It's very paper-based. It's managed by a huge industry that has not changed in a long, long time. And then for a good reason, as in, you know, it's a solid industry that people need professionals and you need to be trusted that they're huge financial transactions. And the residential space, they are the largest transactions of most people's lives. So therefore, it's not something you enter into lightly. But unfortunately, as a result of that, you might say conservatism um, and, and you know, uh, care that is put into it and, and fear and nervousness, it has meant that it, technology has not had much of an impact on the industry. It's lagged behind, yeah. Yeah. So, for example, in, in Ireland, which is where Offer was launched, but we are obviously we're in multiple different countries, but in Ireland, uh, it takes on average over six months from when a property first goes on the market to when the f- completion funds arrive. And that's what makes it a very illiquid market mm-hmm. and very stressful for everybody involved. So what Offer does is it sits as a, as a little widget, a little button on an estate agent's website on all their properties. And it allows anyone who's interested, uh, to, if they are directed to the page or if they find the page themselves, they tap on the button and up pops the Offer panel. And this is where you can see other offers that are on the property. You can register your own interest, but you can do a whole host of things 
before even deciding to submit your own offer. You can book viewings directly into the agent's calendar. You can watch virtual tours. You can access the legal documents. So a big area that we have focused on is bringing forward the preparation of legal documents sooner, if not prior to the property even going on the market and making them available through a data room. Uh, this allows for faster, more informed offers, but it also allows for faster exchanges once an offer is accepted. And then you register your offer. And to register an offer, you have to upload your photo ID and in a lot of cases, your proof of funds. That's checked by the agent and then you're allowed to submit your offer. But you have control over submitting your own offer. And once you submit an offer, it's formally recorded. You get an email dated and timestamped with the offer amount and your conditions. There can never be any dispute or claim that your offer was not passed on to the vendor or anything like that. The vendor gets notified of all offers also. And there's, a, there's an audit trail of everything. Um, so it just gives that sort of comfort and transparency, but it's very smartphone friendly. So the, the, the little widget pops up in the shape of a smartphone. So if you're on your phone or your laptop or your uh, tablet, you can instantly use it like an app. It feels like an app without having to right. actually download an app from the app store. So it just it, 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 it speeds up processes, but it also opens up the market to anybody around the world. You know, so time zones don't matter. We've seen a lot of international uh, buyers placing offers on properties that are not in their country because it's easy and quick to do so. Yeah, and we're wow. and we're working are working on some developments to serve it up in the native language of the person, depending on the country they're they're coming in from. So if you had an agent in London, say, who was selling an apartment in London, and you had a, a buyer in France and a buyer in Hong Kong, each interested in in the property, when they log onto the website, even though the website is is a UK website. Uh, it'll be served in their native language. Wow. So th there's some other innovations that we're working on. So that's the idea is to provide fast property transactions to make it as easy as booking a flight. That's sort of the analogy I like to use. That's really, I mean, I can see, you know, we were talking earlier about making it as frictionless as possible. And that sounds like super slick and uh, frictionless. Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a little anecdote that, that helped, I suppose, again, cement in my mind that there was a, an appetite for this. It was back when I was in, in BidX1 and we were doing the online auctions. And I remember I was getting a sandwich on Baggett Street and uh, my, my phone rang and it was uh, a gentleman who I had never actually spoken to before, but he said he had bought two properties in the online auction a little while ago, but the, the contracts were all signed, it was all done, but the completion was just taking time. And he was wondering, was there anything I could do, any call I could make to help out? And I said, I'd see whatever I could do, no problem. But I asked him, I took the opportunity, I said, look, do you mind me asking, how did you find the online auction? You know, it's, 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 it's great to be able to chat to somebody who's, who's bidding or has successfully bid. He said, oh, yeah, great, no problem, enjoyed it. Um, in fact, he said, I'll tell you where I was. I was, I was sitting on an airplane, uh, taxiing on the ground in Heathrow Airport, uh, waiting for my flight to take off to Dublin. I said, really? He said, yeah, I was, uh, the, the flight was delayed, so we were still on the ground. I knew I had registered to bid, so I took out my phone. And while everyone else, you know, was, you know, texting home or checking their Facebook feed, he he spent, I think, over half a million euro in 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 a few minutes. <laughs> wow! And uh, so that was fine. He put the phone back, you know, before he did any more damage, and uh, he took off. And an hour later, he landed in Dublin. And when he turned on his phone, he said, when he checked his email, uh, signed contracts were already in his inbox. Wow. All exchanged, all done. Property was now was now his. Um and. He was blown away by this. In fairness, he said, look, I'm 20 years buying property. I am a, you know, a regular property buyer and investor. He said, I've never seen anything this quick and easy. He said, I wish I could buy all my properties this way. Yeah. Wow. And I realized, I said, look, that, I, I don't know how this has to happen, but that is the future of buying a property.
You know, if you can, if you, sure. can go through the, if you can go through the entire process from start to finish and not leave your airplane seat, that's the way it should be done. So that was that's the goal within offer. That's the vision. Wow, I, I can yeah. I can I can really see that actually, and uh, making it that simple, you know, and that free flowing and, and slick. I mean, in um, gosh, yeah, really. I mean, the speed of that. Is it just residential property, or is it like any kind of property now at this stage? So it's 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 pretty much all kinds of property. So we have a commercial property uh, product that is very similar, um, slightly different as regards uh, commercial agents will get into a lot more detail about prospective buyers. And so we've built a system whereby the agent can customize the data that they collect. So, for example, if a large investment has been sold, say it's a shopping center and there's 100 tenants and 100 leases. So you've got a big data room hosting all of the legal documents. Mm. That's quite standard now in commercial deals, but that's provided as as part of our, our, our system. But then equally, as people are registering their interest, whether it's to download the documents or whether it's to submit a formal bid for the property, you do a lot more due diligence around what company are they looking to buy it through? You know, is it, is it a personal investment or is it a pension fund or is it a, a company or is it, for example, an SPV? So if it's a special purpose vehicle that's been set up to buy a property, you need more DD there because, of course, if there's a default, you have, you have no assets to go after if it's yeah. an SPV. Whereas if it's, a, if it's a large company with assets, then at least, you know, you can you can sue for specific performance and all sorts of things like that. But um, as regards the process, it's, it's there for commercial property and we're working with some with some great names like Cushman and Wakefield um, in three different countries, um, and you know we're working with with some of the, the the great commercial companies in Dublin as well. You know, Savills, Knight Frank, CBRE, mm-hmm. Cushman and Wakefield, Colliers have all had uh, fantastic successes with with the system, and we're delighted to have them as customers. And, and well, you know, certainly in in the early stages, um, but we're looking to grow grow the commercial side of things uh on the residential side we are soon to release a new product which is lettings um and we are also have a new homes product so allowing fast single touch sale of new homes within developments uh which would be great for first-time buyers um so yeah watch this space Mm. wow exciting stuff i was um I was, I mean, I was going to ask you what's exciting. What do you, what, what are you excited about in the future? But you've kind of gone through your, your roadmap there and it sounds really uh, interesting. I think it, that, yeah, the biggest challenge for us is that, you know, because we are, we're now, a, you know, a pure tech company and I come from a property background. So I understand the property industry and not everything happens instantly. For me, of course, I want everything to happen, you know, tomorrow um, as opposed to next month or next year. And the industry is a very conservative industry. It's a very traditional industry. It takes time before making big changes, which is understandable given the size of the transactions involved. Mm. So we just have to try to sort of shape ourselves around the industry and know the industry that you're selling into. So I used to get frustrated initially because I wanted everything, wanted everybody to sign up now and all properties be going through digitally, but it just takes time. And so there's a bit more hand-holding, there's a bit more explaining, there's a bit more, you know, being with the customer right through the journey, yeah. even in the first year of using the system, that type of thing. Um, but we are, the exciting thing for us is, you know, we, we, we closed a, a big funding round last year, a 3 million uh, round with Barclays Bank in London on board as an investor. And we recently took on board the National Association of Realtors in the US oh. um, via their venture arm called Second Century Ventures. And that was by way of a program they're running called the REACH program, which is in the UK and in the US. And we'd be very excited about a, a roadmap to the US 
uh, with the assistance of the NAR. So that's that's happened in the last few months. That's interesting. Yeah, I I, I had one of their um, their entrepreneur in residence on the podcast a few months ago. A guy called Duke Long, and yeah, uh, yeah, I'm chatting to Duke. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, great guy. Um, yeah, he's I can't remember what episode, but I did a, a podcast with uh, with Duke uh, last year. Um, Robert, we're coming towards the end of the uh, of the chat. I was just going to ask you um, one of the questions I ask all of my guests is knowing now what you know. If you had an opportunity to, you know, whisper some advice into the ear of a young Robert, what <laughs> advice would you give yourself? Oh, I think I would probably say, I think I would say, move faster, act quicker. Um, don't be so worried or paranoid about various things happening or going wrong or things like that. Um, I mean, I am natural risk taker anyway. I'm not an overly conservative person, but I think if I could go back, I could, all the things I've done, I think I could probably do quicker and, um, not not cut corners because that has a negative impression, but not sweat the finer details so much. You know, uh, as my older brother always says to me, you know, done is better than perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, I often was very perfectionist about trying to get everything right. And, you know, the the, 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 the prospectuses we draw up and all the, the, you know, marketing material. That's what's coming from a property background. You always want everything to be very glossy and, and excellent. Um but you tend to, to to maybe take too long over it. So I think I would just don't be nervous. Don't be afraid. Just act quickly. Go, go for it. Just absolutely go for it. Like full on Urgency, make mistakes. Yeah. 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 Make mistakes and then learn from mistakes as opposed to trying to avoid all the mistakes. Great advice. Well, Robert, thank you so much. If anyone wanted to learn more about you or offer, what's the best place to find you? Yeah, sure. Uh, the website is uh, offer.io, O-F-F-O-R.io. Um, I'm, I'm available on my, my email, robert.hoban at offer.io anytime. Um, so that's probably the best way to catch me. Yeah, Or on LinkedIn, LinkedIn easy on LinkedIn. Okay, I'll put some links in the show notes. Uh, but Robert, it's been a great oh. pleasure. Looking, uh, enjoy working with you or talking with you today. And I'm actually going to go on, have a look at Offer now <laughs> today <laughs> and just great. see, have a look at some of the product development. Thanks so much, I, Robert. Enjoy the chat, Gavin. Pleasure. All right, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robert. Now, remember, this industry is evolving very quickly. And are you, you got to ask yourself the question, are you moving with the times or are you resisting the change, resisting the digital transformation of this industry? And I, you know, I want you to go away and have a think about that and just ask yourself, are you actively looking for ways to remove the friction from your business? If you're, if you're renting to tenants, do you make it as friction-free as possible? Can they just simply click a button on a phone and it's done? Can they pay you just like that? Can they do uh, you know pay their deposit or whatever it needs to be done viewing of property all of that should be as friction free as possible and you will benefit from that i strongly believe that to be the case anyway so i hope you enjoyed the episode of uh, behind the facade this week thank you so much for listening as always my number one ask is for you to leave a review or indeed share this episode out with somebody you think would benefit from it in the show notes you're going to find links to robert's linkedin profile to offer io to uh, i guess i'll put bidx1 in there as well and i'll also put uh, robert's email as he does mention it in today's podcast 
if you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade community. There's been a good uptick in the number of members joining lately. And so I would love it if you would join me in there. And as I did recently, I did my one hour sort of free talk for members of that group. And um, it, it was a kind of a, I suppose you call it a free training or a like a webinar type thing. But I just went into a lot of the lessons I've learned over the years. And I will be doing another one of those in the next week or two. And so that is going to be called the Elite Property Hour. And if you're interested in learning more about that, please reach out to me on my um, social media. Gavin J. Gallagher is the, uh, is the handle I use for pretty much everything. And that includes my YouTube channel. And lastly, if you want to stay up to date with the various things I'm working on, please head over to my website, gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. And you can click on a button there to add your name to the email list. All right, folks. That's all for now, and I hope to see you all again next week. Mm -hmm.